This is KJZZ, your news and information station in Phoenix and across Arizona. I'm Tiara Vian. Here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of February 5th, 2024. Cattle ranching helped shape rural Arizona into what it is today. It was one of the five C's that once formed the backbone of the state's economy, along with copper, citrus, cotton, and climate. But Ron Dungan reports that many ideas we have about the history of grazing are wrong. When you drive through parts of rural Arizona, it's hard to imagine the cattle ranchers once came here for the grass. Eduardo Pagan, a history professor at Arizona State University, says the state looked different a couple of centuries ago. You know, the state that we see today when we look out our window is really not the environment that existed if you go back two or three hundred years. When the West was settled, Congress passed a series of laws to encourage people to take up farming. But much of the West was too dry to farm, so people took up ranching, allowing their stock to graze in public lands that had not been claimed. In Arizona, Ranches helped feed men who worked in the copper mines. That was just the beginning. When Texas ranchers overgrazed their herds, they moved them to Arizona. People thought of cowboys differently then. That image of the American cowboy as as kind of a hero and as the quintessential American, that did not exist in the 19th century. No white Stetsons, no fancy boots, no big belt buckles. And I have read editorials in the Arizona newspapers decrying the presence of cowboys in Arizona because they were seen about on the same level that modern Americans look upon gang members. Although some cowboys were small operators who worked for themselves, many worked for big ranches that needed cheap labor, such as the Hash Knife Outfit, a large organization backed by Eastern investors. In the 19th century, if you wanted to insult somebody, you would call them a cowboy. By the late 1800s, Arizona's range had been overstocked. Fencing you know, began in the, in the 1880s and 90s, and it was commonly the fencing was put up by ranchers, and they were basically trying to either keep their neighbor's cattle out or keep their cattle in. That's Rem Hawes of the Bureau of Land Management. He says those early days of raising cattle were a free-for-all. But then in the mid-1880s, drought set in, and a cold winter. Cattle died by the thousands. There was talk of reform, but it took Congress decades to act. In fact, it took another disaster to get them to finally pass legislation. The Great Depression and the Dust Bowl days, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. The Taylor Grazing Act divided the public domain into grazing districts. The idea was to protect public lands from overuse but a lot of damage had already been done. Taylor McKinnon is with the Center for Biological Diversity. The grazing that came with westward expansion, the arrival of the railroad, and the arrival of huge numbers of sheep and cattle permanently changed ecosystems in the Southwest. It literally destroyed grasslands that haven't come back, that probably won't come back in some areas. One thing that changed almost immediately was how fire behaved on the landscape. Before cattle arrived, fires burned frequently in western forests. Those fires were carried by grass. But with overgrazing, the fires stopped. And over time, brush started to build up on the landscape. Other changes took place as well, says Pagan, the historian. The image of the the cowboy has undergone a dramatic rehabilitation. 
in the 20th century, certainly with the advent of, of American movies. Some of the earliest movies were actually Western. Boone Kaufman, a researcher at Oregon State University, says that after decades of overgrazing, public lands could use a rest. The question that we should ask is, what is the best use of these lands today? Grazing on public lands started in the days of the open range, on lands that settlers had not claimed and Americans had little use for. But with more and more people moving west, that's no longer true. Millions hike, camp, and explore these open spaces every year. Kaufman says those lands need a rest. But with Congress gridlocked, that seems unlikely. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. You can find part two of this story at kjzz.org. In business news, when the TSA was founded in November of 2001, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was no real blueprint for how to screen everything and everyone moving through the country's airports. Bomb-sniffing dogs had been used in a limited capacity for years up to that point. But in 2008, the Explosion Detection Dogs program was created, and they've become an essential part of airport security. Kirsten Dorman has more. Patty Mancha with the TSA says it all starts with how the dogs are trained. Our dogs are trained to only look for explosives, explosive materials, anything that can be used to cause harm on an aircraft, in large crowds, etc. Over the course of 18 weeks, they're paired with a handler and trained at a facility that spans acres in San Antonio. These are finely trained athletes. They're fed a certain diet. They get medical care, they get certain hours of sleep. And it's all in the name of building up security in layers, with the TSA canines acting as one of the first. He might show him some love to show him that, hey, you're doing a good job. But at the same time, once a traveler comes in, the dog's ready to go. You see that. And then you also see the way the dog looks at his handler with a lot of love. And according to Sandy Whitehead, who oversees the canine team at Sky Harbor, the dogs also love what they do. I have heard more than one handler laugh that at the end of the day when they go to go home, the dog is dragging you the other way because they want to stay at work. Even though they get to go home with their handlers every night, she says it's still important to understand. They have wonderful lives and they're pampered, but they still are not pets. Whitehead says that just like a service animal that might assist someone with a disability, these dogs have a job to do. Mancha echoed that sentiment. Most people are dog lovers. We all are. But it's not like you're going to come to the officer and tell them how to do their job. It's the same way with a dog. She explains that breaking a canine's focus only slows down the line for everyone. In that line at Sky Harbor, people walk two by two at the direction of TSA agents. The first dog we see at work is Mango. Mango is kind of a moderate to slower paced dog, has a great nose, takes his time to get to where he's got to go, but he, he doesn't miss. That's Mango's handler of two years, Andy Tischer. He's a lot of fun to work with, as you can see. Um, he's very playful, loves to play and interact. He likes other dogs, but he gets very excited and barks. Tischer says Mango is a lot like other Labradors, and that's on purpose. The TSA carefully chooses breeds more inclined to this kind of work. These dogs are chosen because they have a kind of a focus when it comes to playing with toys. And when they're trained, we convert that into a focus into their job. And even with developing technology, Tischer says the dog's instincts and heightened sense of smell are a great tool for efficiently screening travelers.
There's tremendous technology out there, and none of it is anywhere near as good as these dogs. Rena Quedado echoed that sentiment. We're always finding ways to challenge our dogs and to make them that much better. Quedado has been working with canines at Sky Harbor for over a decade. She says success lies in the extensive, ongoing training for both her and her dog partners. A lot of it is rapport building. It's playing with the reward, just kind of relaxing with them while we're off work. Don is the third dog Quedado has worked with. Don, he's very special. He's, um, he's a pretty goofy guy. He enjoys what he does, especially when we're out searching vehicles uh, on the aircraft. Mancha says that every successful handler dog duo she's met has a bond that goes deeper than just training, even if it is crucial. They have that camaraderie, they have that connection. When a canine gets older, retirement depends on a lot of factors. It's always a big decision with the trainer and the handler, and because it affects the whole team. We always put the health and welfare of that canine first. Plus, she says they want to be sure every dog on duty is performing at their best, because the layer of security they provide is also relied on to secure large gatherings and big events beyond the airport, like the Super Bowl or the Final Four in April. These dogs have a very critical role in what they're doing. I mean, they wouldn't go protect a president if that wasn't the case. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. The annual KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest is underway. A haiku is a short poem often made up of 17 syllables and three lines. Submit your haiku that answers what's in store for 24, and we'll read some of them on air. Visit haiku.kjzz.org for details. In education news. The Harlem Globetrotters are playing their 97th season of basketball, but they've evolved a number of times in their nearly century-long run, becoming entertainers as much as athletes. Now the team that helped popularize the slam dunk and wowed audiences for decades still puts on a fun basketball show. But the primary mission is to be ambassadors of goodwill. Globetrotters named Hops, Buckets, and Crossover recently passed out smiles and wisdom to kids at a West Valley elementary school. Matthew Casey was there. The cafeteria at El Mirage Elementary buzzes as children lunch on subs. Rick Haney is the principal of the school he calls lower socioeconomic but high-performing academically. Many students in Haney's school come from families who've attended here for generations. They love their school, so one of our catchphrases is when you miss school, you miss out. And there's a big surprise waiting for those who came to school on this day. Haney knows there are Harlem Globetrotters in the gymnasium, but the kids don't yet. I want them to be inspired, that they can become something great if they put the work in. Warm-ups are underway for the Globetrotters. Hops' real name is Maxwell Pierce. Uh, I'm a dunker, and I like to dribble with my knees. Jason Barrera goes by buckets. My specialty is the one-hand women. I'm a dunker. He's twice been a dunk contest champion. A lot of times in schools, you see people who are maybe don't have a lot of friends, eat lunch alone. Justin Tompkins, a.k.a. Crossover, has an older brother who's also a globetrotter. Both are under five feet tall. They are the team's shortest players ever. Like, I can also dunk, I can also dribble, I can also play with the big guys. I just want kids to believe in themselves and hope they could do anything that they want to do. By the time the student body fills the gym, 
many kids are wearing red, white, and blue headbands that say Harlem Globetrotters. Hops, buckets, and crossover perform ball tricks and slick shots with students and faculty. The kids love it all, especially when Principal Haney sinks an old-fashioned free throw. During question time, a kid asks the Globetrotters if they've been to the NBA and seen LeBron James. Hops calls it one of his favorite questions and explains that no, none of the three have. Hops tells the crowd, you don't even have to play in college to get the most out of basketball. It's not just something that you put in a basket. It is a door opener, it is a key, it is something that you can leverage to get into other things that you are passionate about. After nearly a century of playing, these ambassadors of goodwill are still using basketball to make people smile. And although the act has evolved, they're still busy globetrotting. They plan to visit about 400 schools in four months. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, reporting from El Mirage. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. One of Indian Country's longtime destinations for beadwork supplies and accessories in Phoenix has closed after more than five decades. Gabriel Piatrazio was there last weekend. Today's the last day. The cash register chiming was a bittersweet sound for Reva Stewart, who's been working at Drumbeat Indian Hearts for 12 years, until owner Bob Nuss decided to close up shop along 16th Street north of Indian School Road. It's real now because four years ago we were in the process of trying to shut down and we pulled through COVID and for him to actually decide, well, you know, it's time. It's been bittersweet. The historic storefront was filled with native shoppers in search of clearance sales on leftover inventory. I find some good deals. Stewart even recently started her own company, Shashdane Native Shop. So that's why I'm opening up my own store. She expects a grand opening in March about a block south from where Drumbeat has been based since 1971. Gabriel Pia KJZZ News, Phoenix. From the Politics Desk. Arizona lawmakers agreed to a bipartisan bill Thursday to fix election deadline issues that would have put Arizonans' votes in upcoming elections at risk. From our politics desk, Cameron Sanchez reports. County election officials warned there won't be enough time after the primary and general elections to conduct recounts in close races and also meet federal deadlines to mail ballots to military members and certify the state's presidential vote. All legislative Democrats and nearly all Republicans voted for a bill to give the counties more time by making changes to the state's election calendar, like moving up the primary election date. Democrats, like Senator Prius Underation, said they appreciated the bipartisan negotiation, however difficult the process may have been. We feel confident that the voters of Arizona are protected and that every eligible voter will have their vote counted. The bipartisan bill also adds signature verification requirements to state law, a key demand of Republicans like Representative Alexander Colladin, though he acknowledged other GOP priorities were left out of the deal. We have acted like crabs in a bucket, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. In a statement, Governor Katie Hobbs indicated she will sign the bill into law. Cameron Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. 
It's been a busy week and you may need a little distraction. Try KJZZ's Play. We just launched a puzzle page. It's got a daily and weekly puzzle. You can share it with family, friends, and colleagues. But don't do what I did and share it with your boss. She's so competitive. Give it a go at play.kjzz.org. In Fronteras News. The Department of Defense will help fund investigations for two sites in the Tucson area thought to be the root of groundwater contamination issues. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. The Defense Department says both the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and the Morris Air National Guard facility are greenlit to move forward on expedited investigations into contamination issues with PFAS. The human-made chemicals are linked to health issues like cancer and are also part of a firefighting foam used for years at airports and air bases. The facilities are two of a total 30 sites across the U.S. where contamination is considered critical enough to require investigation and remediation plans. City officials say the designation is important because it allows other federal actions like Superfund designations and funding to move forward more quickly. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, something a bit different from the show. Co-host Lauren Gilger talks with a pastry chef who loves citrus season in the state. It is citrus season. That sounds like good news. But even if you have just one fruit tree, you're likely facing a pretty hefty bounty right about now. You can donate oranges to a local food bank, ship grapefruit to friends in cold climates, and even we here freeze a whole lemon to use later. But if you want to get creative, let me introduce you to Mark Chacon. The pastry chef came to Arizona initially to study violin at ASU. Then he studied journalism and wrote about food for a while until a trip to the Bay Area landed him inside one of the country's best bakeries, Tartine. I really hadn't seen anything like it ever. I didn't really know that it existed, so I just sort of, um, something just clicked in me. I I went there every day uh, while we were there. Um, I was obsessed with it. Uh, I left town with a huge box of pastries. And uh, yeah, I just thought, uh, maybe I can do this. After that, he was all in. He packed up his stuff, moved to San Francisco, and became a cake decorator at Whole Foods, all while trying to get hired at Tartine. He told me he used to bring homemade cakes to the people there and ask for critiques. Well, that eventually led to a stage, which led to jobs with Alice Waters and at Chez Panisse. Today, he is back in the Valley and running his own James Beard Award-nominated bakery operation, Chacon Patisserie. And he told me citrus season is one of, his, one of his favorites here. He makes citrus creams, curds, and marmalades. And I got the chance to make one of his bestsellers with him recently in his kitchen. It's really fun to use citrus in a number of ways. And I would say maybe the most beautiful one. But I saw a cake years ago where the bottom of the cake pan, you know, a nine-inch standard cake pan lined with parchment paper, and then you pour a caramel into there like you would for an upside-down cake. And in fact, you make an upside-down cake. You just sort of slice the citrus into rounds after you've cut off all the pith and the outer skin, Um, slice into little half moons and moons and uh, lay them out, scatter them over the caramel. And then you pour in, you know, really any simple cake batter. It could be an almond cake batter, um, a buttermilk cake batter, um, something that'll really let the citrus pop. Um, And then you bake it, let it cool a little bit, invert it, maybe heat it on the stovetop or a a kitchen torch. And then when you unmold it, you know, you have this beautiful citrus all laid out, sort of fanned out on the top of the cake. And I think any sort of citrus with caramel is a great combo. So that's what I always think is being able to kind of look down at something from a bird's eye view and just see all these beautiful popping different colors. Uh, We have so many beautiful citrus here right now. So 
it's a good way to use them up. I mean, that's a beautiful recipe to begin with. So I guess the, the challenge in using citrus and baking, right, would be a couple of things I'm guessing, and I'm not a baker, but it's sour, right? And so is there a challenge in sort of balancing flavors? That's a great question. So yes, I think so. Like, we try to have, you don't want anything to be really one note in terms of texture or in terms of flavor. Um, So the citrus does tend to bring um, pops of different kinds of flavors. And I think the key there is, well, let's take one thing like a cream cheese Danish that we do. It's our best seller. It's pretty standard. We use different produce on it. We have, like today, I think that we did some raspberry orange, which is blood orange. Um, We have sumo citrus and we have caracara. And they all bring something else to the mix. Three different kinds of citrus on top. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you could do a lot more. I mean, like, I just, I feel like kumquat is a lovely option too, um, but we just didn't get that one in the mix right now. We'll probably do it for something else. But you just want to make sure you have a good mix of different kinds of citrus because some of them are going to be a little bit more on the bitter side. Some are going to be on the sweeter side, some more juicy than others. So I would say with baking, you know, having a couple rounds of doing a certain recipe will really give you, you know, it is baked in, you know, you've made a choice. I'm going to use this mix and then just be critical, you know, like of your work, you know, see what worked for you, what didn't next round, maybe switch up the citrus mix, use a ratio of like more sweet to sour, whatever, you know, you notice from the first round, but just kind of build consecutively on each bake. You talked about several different types of citrus there. Do they really taste different? Like I know the one thing that everyone says right is that Meyer lemons are sweeter. I have no idea even what the other kinds of citrus you mentioned there were. Caracara, is that what you said? I did. Caracara, orange. Um, So, you know, it looks a little bit more pink. I would think uh, not like an electric sort of or like pink, but more of like a 70s pink. Those guys are a little bit more on the bitter side. And they're not quite as juicy as, say, um, yeah, the sumo citrus that we have, which is sort of a bright orange against each other. They look beautiful. They're well-balanced in flavor, too. So we try to lay them out so that you get a little bit of each in a bite. That's really smart. Okay. So the other thing I would imagine is maybe a challenge, but maybe a, a benefit of working with citrus, right, is, is that it's um, texturally very different. Like, you've got a hard kind of outside. You can use the rind in lots of ways, I'm sure. But also, it's super juicy inside. How do you deal with that? Uh, so different textures, like the, you're absolutely right. The outside, the, the peel, you know, you can use that. You can candy it to varying extents. You know, like what you're basically doing when you're candying is, you know, you're replacing the water that's in the cells of the peel um, with the sugar syrup that you're cooking it in. So you can candy citrus to different levels of candying. Some are going to be sweeter. You could always go back on the, the sugar a little bit, cook it a little less for something that's a little bit more juicy and not something that's going to be preserved, you know, for the next year packed in sugar. Um, once you get the, the outer skin off, you, you have basically a uh, sort of a beautiful looking uh, ball of citrus there, and it's all separated by the different membranes. Um, you can cut that, you know, put it on its side and cut it into circles and semispheres. Um, you could also cut in between the membrane uh, with a nice sharp knife and get little supremes of different citrus. Um, in that process, a lot of juice is going to come out. So I always recommend doing that over top of a, like a, a bowl of some sort so that you're catching all the, um, all the juice that's coming out. The juices, you know, can be used for curds. Um, you could make a lemon posset. You could, you know, make a curd and fold some lightly beaten whipped cream into it to make sort of like a cake filling or a tart filling that's lightened, uh, a little creamy. But 
you can really make use of all of it. You can also reduce the juices with sugar and make sort of a burnt orange caramel. The only thing I haven't really used is the actual uh, membranes in between. I, I haven't found a good use for that, <laughs> although some chefs have. Okay, so let's go see what you've got cooking in here. So actually, do you want to come with me real quick down sure. here and we'll grab some, some cream cheese filling? Mm. Oh my gosh, it's freezing in here. <laughs> this is a room-sized refrigerator, I should say. We just walked into. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so you've got huge containers of citrus in here. Raspberry oranges, sumo mandarins. Oh, they're beautiful. We've got it all. Okay. All right, so what are you carrying here for us as we walk back? So uh, earlier today, Steph... Uh, took out citrus. They cut off the outside peel and pith and um, they cut them into little um, circles and semicircles. And the gentleman that we just saw in the walk in there, Chef Charlie, he laminated this brioche dough yesterday. It's beautiful, yeah. Thank you. You're pulling it out of the big proofer here. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we've got an oven set, or we will shortly. So, yeah, we're just going to kind of get these guys a little bit moistened and then have down that center there. And then... This is the cream cheese filling? It is. So it's cream cheese and then um, vanilla bean paste, a little bit of starch for thickening, mm -hmm. and uh, some sugar. And this time of year is really great because you kind of get this sort of creamsicle sort of vibe going on when you do the cream cheese <laughs> danish with citrus. These are some of the sumo oranges? It sure is. Just kind of arrange them decoratively a little bit. There we go. So we got that. It's kind of building a little base of the, um, the sumo citrus because it's the sweetest. Uh, for Karakara, I'm just going to put him a little bit less liberally because he's contributing more in the way of bitterness right now. And for these, you know, you just have a little pop of color here and there. These are the blood oranges, essentially? They sure are. Yeah. And um, we'll hit it with a little bit of sugar. And then that's something else that's nice about um, the structure of the citrus. You can um, get a little bit of a, like a scorch on it, just a little bit of color. The tips will blacken a little bit while the fruit stays juicy. It's just because of all the sugars in there that are caramelizing. Yeah. And then um, we'll bake them until they're done. And they're done when the cream cheese filling is set. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you having me out. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Lauren. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian. This is KJZZ, your news and information station.